Hey everybody, welcome to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast. I'm Brian, that's Ross over there. Ross, today we are going to talk a little bit about the sketchy history of Joseph Smith. And just by the title right there, it sounds like we're picking on Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. But but why, Ross, before we even jump into all of this, and it it is a, it, it is a little sketchy, okay? That's why we're calling it the sketchy history. We're not trying to pick on Joseph Smith. We're just trying to unveil the truth about the founder of Mormonism, and we're even going to get some help from official documents from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So we're not just using documents or books like, um, uh, what, what was her name? Uh, no Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody, yeah. which, is a, which is a really interesting read, not a Christian author, right. just a biographer. It's an interesting read, but, but probably not something that, that Mormon bishops would encourage their their people to have on their bookshelf, right. right? No, not at all. But even even so, more and more information has come to light historically, and so there are reputable sources and scholars working on this, historical scholars, that th- this information is out there. Right. Um, you know, when I was growing up, um, a lot of this information, it was it was a little bit out there, but it was easy for the Church to deny that it was that it was real or that it existed, but now there's so much information available today that it's really hard to um, totally whitewash Joseph Smith the way that he has been in the past. Yeah, and in fact, the Church, well, I think it was in 2013, published some essays called mm-hmm. Gospel Topics, and they published these on their website, um, LDS.org, I believe it is. Yeah, it used to be LDS.org. Whatever it is now. Whatever okay. it is now, churchofjesuschrist.org or something like that. Yeah, if you want, if, pe- if listeners want to find these, because they are a little bit hard to find. I, yeah. I found them by, by just Googling uh, Gospel Topics LDS, and it came yeah. right up. So yeah. that's good. There are about 13 or 14 topics. And we're going to refer to some of these, but the Gospel Topics were published by experts in the church to try to be an apologetic, yeah. to answer some of these questions and what they would say is maybe the misinformation about Joseph Smith and about some of the stuff we're going to cover today and in the future. In fact, we might even spend some time later on this podcast just going through those gospel topics because it's really interesting. And actually, Ross, it kind of backfired a little bit on the church, right? Because it was meant to be an apologetic, but I know personally a lot of former Mormons who, when they read these documents that were officially published by the Church, they realized, okay, this is true then. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of a double bind for the LDS Church, because this information is out there, and people are asking questions, so they figured, well, we better address these questions and put our spin on them, or our interpretation on, on that the data is irrefutable, but it can be interpreted sometimes in different ways, and so, so they've tried to interpret it in a way that's faith-promoting, for the LDS Church, or at least heads off some of the worst critics and questions. Well, the problem is there's a lot of other people who were not aware of those things, those question marks and those difficult issues, and suddenly now the Church has has kind of uh, put them out there, and people are going, oh, I, I, I didn't know, and mm. here's my own Church telling me. And so it, it's a tough place for them to be, so they have published them, but they haven't run them up the flagpole. Mm. They're kind of a little bit hard to find, a little bit hidden sometimes, so that their leaders then can use them as they need to use them, but not everybody kind of like is in on the loop. It's not like they made a big public announcement about it. Yeah, and a couple of, we're going to cover five um, sort of sketchy practices or sketchy facts about Mm -hmm. Joseph Smith in today's episode. 
and a couple of these actually have gospel topics articles on them, and we'll refer yeah. to those a little bit. Encourage people to go just check it out for yourself, because you know our goal here is to unveil Mormonism. We're not trying to pick on Mormonism. We're just trying to be faithful to God's word and point out what doesn't really line up with Scripture, right. bi- the Bible. When we say Scripture, we mean the Bible. And so for seeking Mormons, people who are maybe questioning their history, we don't mean to offend, um, we, we just want you to hear the rest of the story. Right, and I, I would say that to our listeners, you know, honestly, it's, a, it's easy to take pot shots mm. at Joseph Smith, because um, you can take these real issues and you can, uh, you can spin them in the worst possible way as well. Um, and, and really make, uh, you, you know, kind of make Joseph Smith a cartoon character, a cartoon villain or something. But, um, but our intent is we, we want to give respect where it's due. We, wanna, we, we understand that Latter-day Saints really do honor and revere Joseph Smith. And, um, and so we, wanna, we don't want to just, you know, lampoon him or, or just, you know, totally denigrate him. But these are out there. These are real issues. And the Church, in fact... The LDS Church, leaders of the Church in the past, have actually, in a way, challenged us to have this conversation. So, for example, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a president of the Church um, in the middle of the 20th century, he says, um, here's his quote, Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. Now, I totally agree with him on that. Mm -hmm. Now, he goes on, he says, He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed, and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground, Mm. period. Now, I know he's talking to his insider audience, and so they're all going to immediately adopt the first alternative. Yeah, he's a prophet. Mm. Um, So he might be using a little rhetoric there, but but the, the fact is he invites us to examine Joseph Smith and to see whether Mormonism falls or whether it stands. And so that's, you know, what a lot of people have done, and, and that, that's why the, all this data is out there about Joseph Smith. And as you pull away kind of the faith-promoting story, then you see sort of the real man a little bit. All right, so let's do that. Let's start, Ross, with... Something from his very early days, Joseph's very early days, and we're going to call this his occult treasure hunting. Explain that. What what is that? What is the occult? What was treasure hunting hunting back in the eighteen hundreds, and how did that all connect to Joseph Smith's story? Right. When we talk about the occult, we talk about um, another way to talk about it is folk magic, magic practices, practices related to uh, divination or trying to manipulate spirits in some way to, um, you know, it's related to ancient pagan practices or practices that some would call witchcraft, or, but, but it's basically the, the folk practices that were really pretty prevalent in the early 1800s in the Northeast and really all across America um, that involved trying to use magical, magic-type practices to gain wealth or power or to find out secret knowledge or, or something like that. And Joseph Smith's family was involved in, in these folk magic-type practices. Um, and one of them was um, trying to find buried treasure by divination, by using spiritual means to discover where this treasure was buried. Hmm. Okay, so, and this connects into something that Mormons would probably understand, but probably a lot of our non-Mormon listeners 
would not be aware of this thing called a seer stone. Mm -hmm. What was a seer stone and how did that how did that work its way into Mormon folklore? A seer stone that like today you'd think of a crystal ball. Okay, a uh, 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 fortune teller looks in the crystal ball and sees an apparition or a vision or, or something like that. A seer stone is like kind of like that. It's a, it's a special stone that has these magic properties or so thought so called that if you look into it, it will it will be uh, be a vehicle of some kind of spiritual revelation to you. So Joseph would take the steers, the stone, and he'd put it in the bottom of his hat. He'd hold hold the hat up to his face to block out all the light, and then supposedly the stone would glow, or it would it would become like a TV screen or something like that to be able to uh, bring knowledge or information. In the case of money digging, it would tell him like, oh, here's where the money is buried, or here's the nature of the evil spirits who are guarding it, or it would give him that kind of information to be able to um, find and dig up the money for profit. Okay, so young Joseph Smith did this in western New York, in Palmyra, New York, and the problem is it was illegal. So what happened next? Yeah, it, well, it was illegal. Um, and and there, there was a movement in a lot of the culture in that society today of that time to say, hey, we need to move past these kind of uh, primitive superstitions and so forth. But it became illegal because it was sort of a form of fraud. Okay, so you would tell somebody, oh, I think there's buried tre- like 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 the pirate Captain Kidd. Everyone's mm. looking for his treasure. Or ancient um, you know, Native Americans buried their... Their stash in their their hoard is under your ground, and you know so you'd get the guy to to pay you a fee, and you dig it up, and and then and then you supposedly you were just about there, and and it would move because you didn't do the incantation right or the evil <laughs> spirits were guarding it or something like that, and so it was illegal because because you were defrauding people, mm. um, you know for 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 private gain, and so you know. Um, so Joseph was actually Joseph. convicted of, I think the law back then was called the Vagrant Act in, in the state of New York. Yeah, there was, a, there was the idea of vagrancy that you're trying to make money off of, you know, without working. Um, and so fortune telling, stuff like that was included in that. And in 1826, he was arrested, brought before a judge. He was charged with being a disorderly person, a glass looker. And um, the judge determined that Joseph was guilty. Now, there's some dis- debate about whether that's a court or whether that's the preliminary hearing. But either way, the court records have been found that show that, you know, Joseph Smith, that this actual legal pr- pro- process actually did happen. And um, he was known. There's plenty of affidavits from people who knew him in that area. He was known uh, for being, uh, for practicing that. It was He was known as as the practitioner of this uh, glass-looking or treasure-seeking. And then, so shortly after this, after this kind of getting in trouble with the law, young Joseph, he's he probably, what, is 12, 13 at this point? Well, in 1826, he is... No, he's... Oh, uh, guys, do the math. 1805, he's 21. Okay, so he's mm-hmm. 21. So, so in his late teen and early young adult years, yeah. And really, the in, yeah, the initial vision, what, was he... He was 14 yeah. or 15... Or seventeen. So that's this another was, topic we'll talk about the first yeah, vision. But yeah. the standard story is fourteen. So basically, all of this glass looking and and kind of treasure hunting was happening in the time during the time of the first vision. Right. Uh, yeah. Post first vision, and so in the Mormon story, 
in the official story, the angel Moroni appears to Joseph Smith on an annual basis uh, for several times, maybe four years leading up to his actually taking possession of the plates, the gold plates in order. So this is happening during the time when supposedly every year the angel Moroni is prepping him for the time when he's going to take possession of this ancient scriptural record. Okay, so we have to cover that now, because some people are listening to this saying, what are what what plates, right? <laughs> so a Mormon listening knows exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the plates and the first vision, but that's really the next part of the sketchy history of Joseph Smith, so let's explain that. What is the first vision? What was that all about? Yeah, so um, the LDS official story um, talks about how really Joseph's career as a prophet, was kicked off by, quote, the first vision. It, it has this, this primary place where the story goes that he was seeking to figure out which of all the religions in the area were correct. Mm. And so in, that, in, that, in New York in that time, there was um, a lot of revivalism going on in different, different years. There was uh, a lot of vigorous activity among Protestant churches, some controversies between them, and his family... Uh, kind of dabbled in different ones. They would check out the Methodist Church. They would check out the Presbyterian Church. And so the story goes that Joseph is at, he he wants to know which one of them is the true church, the correct church. Um, and so he goes to, out into this grove, the sacred grove. It's called today. In retrospect, he goes out into this grove near the family farm, and he begins to pray to God, asking him which church is the right church. And in response. Um, he describes how two personages appear to him, and they, they, they prove to be the, uh, God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And the Father tells him uh, not to join any of these churches because they're all apostate, and they're all far from him, and they're, all their, their uh, leaders are corrupt, and so forth. And so that sets Joseph Smith upon the, the course of the restoration. He's going to restore the true church, the original Christianity, um, which he proceeded to do over the years to come. Now, he's supposedly 14 years old at the First Vision, and, and the whole thing is uh, preparation for the Book of Mormon comes forth. That he transit, It was supposedly an ancient record uh, inscribed on plates of gold. He translates the plates of gold using the same seer stone, by the way, that he used to find money, and then he founds the, the Mormon Church in 1830. At, that would be about age 25. So mm -hmm. there, there's the course of his, uh, his young adult and teenage years, kicked off by this first vision. And the first vision is, is controversial enough. There's enough out there about the first vision that actually there's a gospel topic on it. We'll include a yeah. link to that in our show notes today. But Ross, why? what was—okay, uh, we're not going to get today into— the problems we have with the first vision, as you stated it, there's obviously problems we have with there's it. There's theological Christians. problems, et cetera. Right? Yeah, but let's just just on, just just purely by in terms of facts, what's the problem with the first vision accounts? Well, the the big problem from the point of view of Joseph Smith's story is that we don't really even know. Well, we don't even know whether it happened or if it did happen, what happened, mm. because the official account was only recorded almost 20 years after the, after the fact. And, and over, over time, historians have discovered other accounts of the first vision, either from Joseph Smith himself or what people say that Joseph told them. They've written it in their diary and so forth. And, and there's at least nine um, different 
different accounts, one form or another, um, that all differ on, on a number of significant um, respects. Hmm. So the official story is called into question because of the um, because of the existence of these variate, varying accounts of the same event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it really does call into question. I mean, if, if this is so, so important in the in the Mormon story, why why is there not just just one consistent account? Right. Exactly. And so what, so that raises the question of all right, even if something did happen, which again we have a number of reasons to doubt, but even if it did happen. Um, why did the story change over time? Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that the story it, it was shared in so many different and, and really, really different forms makes you wonder whether or not it's just a product of Joseph's misimagination. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that leads then to the third sketchy episode in Joseph's life, because after the first vision in the early years, the church was founded there in Palmyra, New York, and the, the church, Joseph and his followers eventually moved to Kirtland, Ohio, and that's where there was a banking scandal. Yeah, Kirtland, Ohio that is um, in the northeast corner of Ohio, not far from Lake Erie. So not a long, long ways from Palmyra, pretty much straight west. And what happened in Kirtland, Ohio, is that the Mormon missionary, that started, Joseph started sending out some missionaries as they were selling the Book of Mormon and proclaiming this new thing, and they ran into a community of Christians um, who, like, accepted their message lock, stock, and barrel. So they had this instant community of converts. And, and so things were really taking off there. Now, Joseph had burned some bridges in New York, and things were not going so well there, so he moved, he moved to Kirtland, Ohio, and everyone, all of his followers moved with him, and they had this instant community in Kirtland. They had a lot of trouble in Kirtland. A lot of, uh, they built a temple there, their first temple, um, you know, they saw a lot of con- converts coming in. It created tension with the locals, as it always did wherever they went, because the, um, suddenly a bunch of poor people who, who couldn't be sustained by the economy were added. And anyway, but the point is so, uh, the point with this particular issue, there's a number of issues in Kirtland, but the one that I wanted to talk about today, because it's part of Joseph Smith's history and the sketchy part of that, is that he formed... Um, what, what today, I mean, it would be like a, a Ponzi scheme. It, he formed an illegal bank. They sold shares in the bank. Hmm. When people began to ask for their money, the bank collapsed. Joseph Smith had to hide out and flee. He had dozens of lawsuits against him. Um, and so he, he, just had, he had to basically disappear, and ultimately he left Kirtland a couple years later. Um, basically to avoid the accountability for his banking scandal. Okay, so the bank was called the Kirtland Safety Society. It was formed in 1836, and it failed in 1837. And Joseph leaves Kirtland under cover of darkness in 1838. Yeah, January 1838. So, yeah, so it's all happening. So... Um, they had the, the law was you had to apply to the state for a charter, and so the, the state refused to give them a charter. That's why it was illegal. Uh, the state said, "No, we don't think you have enough." I mean, so the state they're looking for like, do you have enough assets? Um, do you you know what's your what's your reserve? Mm. And you know, is it safe for people to invest their money and so forth? They didn't have enough assets, and so what they so but 
uh, one of them had gone, I think Oliver Cowdery had gone to New York to get these expensive printing plates made that said, you know, Kirtland Safety Society Bank on it. And they had the plate, they paid for the plates, and now they suddenly, they don't get the charter. They just thought they were going to get the charter. So what they did was they printed the money anyway. Well, okay, it's it acted like money. It wasn't legal money, but it was like um, they printed shares, and the shares were negotiable, so they had a, the function of money. And so what they did was they altered the money to say, it's because they, they, they were not given the charter for the for the Kirtland Safety Society Bank, they they... They scratched it out, and they added in um, a couple words, so it became the Kirtland Safety Society. They added in anti, and they added an ING at the end. Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Association. Hmm. Um, so they could still use their place. They still sold and distributed the, the certificates. Um, and, and ultimately, creditors wanted their money. They could kind of see where this was going. They wanted to get their money out, and there wasn't any money to support the claims of the creditors. The bank failed. A lot of people were left uh, holding the bag, so to speak. Mm. But the thing is, I think the thing that is sketchy about this... Well, that all sounds sketchy it all enough. Pretty <laughs> sketchy, yeah. It's all, already pretty sketchy. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that, that makes it even more so is that um, Joseph claimed that this bank was formed on the basis of divine revelation. Mm. A number of people in their diaries, they said... Uh, that he that he heard an audible voice from God telling him to form this bank, and that when other banks would fail, their bank would thrive and succeed and and flourish and overcome all the other banks. Hmm. And so, not only is it a question about Joseph's, well, at the very minimum, it's a question about his competency hmm. and what is he doing in a in a banking industry. Mm-hmm. Nothing about that. At another level, it's maybe a question about his integrity. Hmm. We don't know. It's we don't know whether or not it was a conscious scam, or just a, a fool's scheme. Mm. Um, and, and, but on, the, on a, another level yet, it's a question about Joseph's prophetic calling. He said, this is from God, and it's going to succeed, and it didn't succeed. And so that's why it's kind of a sketchy uh, episode. Yeah, the Bible says, in the Old Testament, it says, if a prophet, if a prophet prophesies something, it doesn't come true, stone him. Yeah, <laughs> like, like yeah. That's, you're not following the right prophet. Yeah. yeah, and and in fact, a lot of people did leave the Mormon Church at that time, yep. and he lost he lost some followers, but he also moved on to the next place. And right. and again, that was anytime you, anytime. <laughs> again, when I read the story of Joseph Smith, and I, I recognize that I have a lens I'm reading it through, sure. but I, I I I just recognize these would all be bricks. I used to a good Mormon friend of mine. I would just say, let's just stack up bricks. Doesn't this does this make you question? And then here's how about, how about this one and another brick and another brick and pretty soon you have a pretty big wall, yeah. And it's and it points to the fact that that maybe Joseph Smith was a swindler, maybe Joseph Smith was like maybe he never outgrew that that uh, treasure hunting yeah, from his point. from his mm-hmm. early years, mm-hmm. and he was always looking for another either a way to get rich or a way to influence people. Maybe, you know, when I read about Joseph Smith, it reminds me of some contemporary people that are narcissists, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that some more. Again, I, I know for a, for a faithful Mormon hearing that that's hard for them to hear, I guess I would just say to a faithful Mormon, well, how would you explain this? Like, what would, Could you be honest about this? And I guess my question to you, Ross, is 
what does the Mormon Church say about this banking scandal? Because it's not one of it's not covered in a gospel topic, I don't believe. Right, it's not. It's probably lesser known. Um, <clears throat> what they do is what the LDS Church um, references do. They talk about a lot about the um, all the persecution mm. that the the Mormons were um, subjected to in Kirtland, and particularly D. Joseph Smith and so forth. Uh, and they just and so they just pretty much put it under the category of anti-Mormon opposition, hmm. um, but they don't really peel back the the layer and and say, oh, there's probably a reason for why people were upset with Joseph Smith, and maybe it wasn't religious persecution, maybe it was more because he had you know he had bankrupted them and you know, stole their money and so forth, you know. So so they don't they don't they they look at the surface level. Um, activity, and then they just reinterpret it in terms of their lens, mm-hmm. instead of looking. Okay, what are the connect the dots for me here? What are the what are the reasons? Mm-hmm. You know, and and so, you know they've dealt with it in other places, um, more so, but still putting a very positive lens on. Oh, it was the economic conditions, or it was ba- Joseph got bad advice, or yeah. um, you know something like that. Okay, so then that leads us to the fourth sketchy episode, and I guess this isn't just an episode, this was something true of Joseph, really even from the early days, and it is his connection, and therefore the Mormon Church's connection, with Freemasonry. Ross, what was Freemasonry, and why is this a problem? Yeah, Freemasonry is a secret society that um, started, oh, I don't know, in the Middle Ages or the early part of the Renaissance modern world um, in Europe, and it uh, was imported to the United States. So it, it's a secret society where uh, that claims to have all of the, the final say about the mysteries of reality and, and who God really is and how to really um, become initiated into these mysterious spiritual truths that are supposed to make you a better person and, and so forth. And so... Um, and, and its ideas are related to, you know, some of the folk magic or some of the occultic um, ideas that were prevalent in, in Joseph Smith's milieu. So a lot of people were attracted to Freemasonry for various reasons. Um, Joseph Smith's father joined the Freemasons um, in Palmyra when Smith was a, was a boy, and his brother Hiram was initiated into it in Palmyra as well. For some reason, Joseph never joined the Freemasons at that at that at that time. So this is but um, oh twenty fifteen twenty years later in Nauvoo, there were a lot of the Mormon Church leaders who were members of Freemasonry, and Joseph Smith joined at that time. Okay, so Nauvoo. Let's just catch everyone up on this. Some people don't know what that word is. That was a small town in Illinois. Um, and so that was the next stop for the Mormons after Kirtland. Well, no, they went to Missouri first. Okay. So after they um, burned their bridges in Kirtland, they, they moved to Missouri. And in fact, even early from early time in Kirtland, Joseph had sent um, scouts and, and settlement parties out to, to western Missouri, even while they were in still Kirtland as well. So he had a, like a safety net. And so eventually the whole church relocated to Kirtland, so, uh, to uh, Missouri, north of Kansas City area. Okay. And then when they... How long were they in Missouri? They were in Missouri for maybe five or six years. 
Now, was this Independence, Missouri, or is that something it was else? A, it was near Independence, near north Independence. of Independence. Okay. Yeah. Now they still have. A, yeah. There's an, there's Independence was part of it, but um, they were spread out over two or three counties. Okay. And then uh, they had trouble in Missouri, trouble with the people who already lived there, um, and eventually the governor of Missouri kicked them out. And so they fled back east again across the Mississippi right. River to the town of Nauvoo, which really wasn't anything there much. Um, it's on the Mississippi River, um, so it's in western Illinois, and they really built it up into a thriving community. It became, it became quite a prosperous community. Um, and eventually they were, they were um, sort of harried out of Nauvoo and came to Utah in 1847. So they're in Nauvoo in the early part, early half of the 1840s. And that was really their last stop then before Utah. And that yep. famously is also where Joseph Smith was as the as the Mormon Church would say it, where he was martyred. Yeah, Joseph Smith was at, at you know he he was at his most prominent in Nauvoo. He was not only the prophet, the president of the church. He was the mayor of Nauvoo. He was the um, the the general in the militia hmm. uh, and all the rest. So he held held all the cards in Nauvoo. And but Nauvoo was a time when uh, in Nauvoo there was there were a lot of. Um, rapid developments in the in Mormon theology and practices, a lot of tremendous innovation um, during that time frame, and that's where Freemasonry comes into play. Yeah, so it was in Nauvoo, Illinois, that Joseph Smith then, in, in March, I think, of 1842, becomes a Freemason, mm -hmm. and then you see a lot of those secret rituals showing up in the temple. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that, because, again, our, our Mormon listeners maybe understand what we're talking about, although some of them might not, because if they haven't really gone through the temple yet, then as I've learned from some of my friends, that it really is even a shocking, eye-opening event, even for more good Mormons, yeah. right, who grew up in the church and eventually yeah. get to go through the temple. I have a friend that just shared with me about how shocking it was when he he was a return missionary, just a very faithful Mormon, and he got married in the temple, and that was just so strange for, for him and his wife. So even for a Mormon, I think the temple stuff is a little strange. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite obscure, arcane, uh, but, it, but so Joseph, at, the point, at that time in Nauvoo, um, he's exploring these higher mysteries. He becomes initiated into Freemasonry in March, and uh, I don't know, Freemasonry has 33 levels, and it takes a lot of time to get through. Each level you prove whatever. And he, 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 he was initiated into the, all 33, the highest level, the next day. So it's <laughs> very odd, um, typically, I think, for a Freemason. But then two months later in May, they introduce the, um, is the core ritual of the temple, which is called the endowment. And so the endowment is really from a Mormon... So the thing about... Uh, Freemasonry is it doesn't really it, it's not really like um, how to get to heaven so much as how to be initiated into these secret mysteries. In Mormonism, they they took it and 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 made it into how to get to heaven, how to get exalted. Um, and so the temple endowment ritual is really all about um, understanding the the things that you have to be able to do or know at the veil of heaven in order to be admitted into heaven. Now, I know Latter-day Saints um, believe the temple ritual is sacred, 
And so, you know, I want to be, I want to be sensitive in talking about it. I'm not going to go into all the details of it and so forth, but it, it, it's very apparent that um, most of the key parts of the endowment um, ceremony are kind of cut and pasted from directly from Freemasonry. From the ritual of Freemasonry, there's so many parallels to the endowment ceremony that, that um, many, many observers have said, oh, well, that pretty much we can connect the dots between Joseph Smith becoming a Freemason and the mm. pre- prevalence of Freemasonry in Nauvoo to, boom, here now is the temple ceremony that he's in, taken all the same elements and invested a slightly different meaning in them. Okay, so, but I could hear a, a faithful Mormon saying, so what? Why, why is that sketchy? What's the, what's the big deal about that? Well, one thing is, is that, um, that the Mormon Church will tell you that the temple endowment ceremony was received by God from, Revela- by, from God by revelation, that it was revealed what, what this is all about. And so that would, that would you know, cause you to question that claim. Is it really, does it really by revelation, or was it just by Joseph's experience and mm. his creativity and his, his sort of um, entrepreneurial mind and so forth, putting two and two together in a new way? All right, so Ross, we've we've talked about Joseph's, um, you know, his early days as a young man, treasure hunting. We've talked about bank scandals, and we've talked about Freemasonry, and there's so much more we could talk about when we're examining the life of Joseph Smith. And again, I would encourage readers, if you're interested and courageous enough to read this, again, for a Mormon, it would maybe take some courage to step out and read something like Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History. I read that years ago in college. I'm sure there's some other stuff. I just encourage you to seek out truth about stuff. Well, the Gospel Topics essays, as you've mentioned, I would also mention another a biography of Joseph Smith that was written by a faithful Mormon, hmm. but it's honest about this stuff. Okay. It's called Rough Stone Rolling okay. by Richard Bushman. Yeah. Now, he's a loyal Mormon, and yet he's also a, a accurate and faithful historian. And so you're going to find a lot of this stuff is exposed and, and discussed um, from uh, the perspective of somebody who's a member of the Church and, yeah. who, and who loves the Church, but they're an honest historian. Yeah, and I and we wanted to save this last one. We're going to talk more about this last topic quite a bit on this podcast, but I, I think it's also really important to talk about plural marriage, or that's what the Mormons would call it. Um, maybe more, the the rest of the world might know it as polygamy. Yeah. And again, I I know that whenever whenever I talk to a Mormon and I start talking about polygamy, they just think I'm a Mormon hater and I'm. I'm just picking on them, and I don't understand. And so, I, again, I, I think it's important for us to be sensitive on this topic for a Mormon who's listening, who might want to just turn this off. But I know that there are some Mormons listening who are open to really hearing about this, and maybe they've even done some of their own research. In fact, I would encourage you, we'll put a link in the show notes, I would encourage you to check out the gospel topic on plural marriage in Kirtland in Nauvoo. There are, mm-hmm. There are three or four topics on plural marriage in the gospel topics, so they cover this quite a bit mm-hmm. because they know this is a big deal, and this is really kind of a hurdle for a lot of people entering Mormonism or even people who want to get out of Mormonism. And so, Ross, let's just finish this by talking a little bit about polygamy and Joseph Joseph Smith's connection right. to it. 
Yeah, because you know you can talk about polygamy in Joseph Smith's life, and then it, polygamy becomes kind of a different thing when it when you talk about it in the history of the Utah Church, and 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 then um, you know even into contemporary age uh, time today. But as far as Joseph Smith's history and Joseph Smith's story, um, the polygamy. Um, he began practicing polygamy secretly in the Nauvoo period, starting about, well, we don't know exactly when it started. We know it started to become documented. There was a revelation in about 1843, 42, 43, I can't remember the exact date. Yeah, the Gospel Topics says that it was in 1843, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but it said, and I'll quote this from the Gospel Topics, it says, but it's early... The revelation about plural marriage was written, wasn't written down until 1843, but its early verses suggest that part of it emerged from Joseph Smith's study of the Old Testament in 1831. Yeah, all the way back when he was he was fascinated with the in the Kirtland era. That's when he bought the um, the mummies that had the Book of Abraham. There's a whole other story, but yeah. Um, yeah. So he'd been stewing on this idea, um, looking for parallels to the Old Testament and the New Testament, because this is supposed to be a restoration of original Christianity. And so he was I'm sure he was intrigued by this polygamy idea, this issue. But it began to be practiced um, it's with some, you know, some volume in Nauvoo, where Joseph Smith, you know, nobody knows exactly how many women he married. Um, the estimates from different scholars put it in the upper 20s. You know, twenty six, twenty eight women that he was that he was married to. Um, some of them were celestial marriages. In other words, they were he was sealed to that woman for um, there and for eternity. Um, some of them were carnal marriages, you might say, where there was actually physical consummation. Um, and so, and then he began to initiate his closest followers into the practice of polygamy as well. In fact, he would use polygamy as a loyalty test to his followers. So he said he basically asked um, Heber Kimball to give him permission to be sealed to Heber's wife. And so that was like, so what Heber Kimball is going to go like, oh, I guess I have to prove my loyalty here. Mm. Um, the biggest loyalty test was his wife. Because as you can imagine, um, she starts to notice that there's something going on. And at one point in time, two of... Um, Joseph's plural wives were were living in their house with him and Emma, and they were like helping around the house, kind of maid type, whatever. But Joseph has this other thing going on on the side, so she beca- starts to become aware of this and starts to call him out on it. And um, and uh, Joseph's response to Emma is part of, I think, a, a pretty sketchy deal too. Okay, so let me. I want to read from Gospel Topics on this, on Emma and her approach to this, or her understanding, or her reaction to this. Again, I'm quoting from Gospel Topics. You can find this at churchofjesuschrist.org. It says there that Emma approved, at least for a time, of four of Joseph Smith's plural marriages in Nauvoo. She accepted all four of those wives into her household. She may have approved of other marriages as well, they say. But Emma likely did not know about all of Joseph's sealings. Sealings meaning being sealed to someone for time and eternity right. or just for a eternity. Sealing, another word for a, a, a marriage. A marriage, okay. She vacillated. So again, they say there that she likely did not know about all of Joseph's sealings. Again, just that is so sketchy to me. That is so sketchy to me that you're, you're married 
to the prophet of a church, the leader of a church, and and you know, again, we're leaders in church, Ross. We're pastors in churches. I don't know how our governing board would look at this <laughs> if we said, "Hey, look, God revealed this to me, but I'm not going to tell my wife about it. Right. I'm not going to tell my wife about all of it." That's just so sketchy to me. Anyway, well, by the way, let me just insert this: the the book, the Revelation in Doctrine and Covenants that talks about plural marriage requires that for a man to take a plural wife, a wife, he has to have the approval of his first wife. Wow. So that relates to that. Okay. And we're going to get into some of the scripture here in a second. Again, this is all right here, annotated on mm-hmm. gospel topics. I'm reading, again, my reaction isn't official, but these <laughs> words are official from uh, churchofjesuschrist.org. It says there that Emma vacillated in her view of plural marriage. That's that's, that's stating it. it kindly. Yeah. yeah. At mm. some point supporting it and at other times denouncing it. Here's what's crazy to me. This is of everything we've talked about. There's so much sketchiness and bricks after brick after brick after brick when you're talking about Joseph Smith. And we're just talking right now about Joseph Smith. We're not talking about anyone else yet. Doctrinal stuff. We'll cover that in other episodes. But it says here that in the summer of 1843. So this would have been in Nauvoo? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, so Joseph Smith dictated the revelation on marriage, a lengthy and complex text containing both glorious promises and stern warnings, some directed at Emma. Now, mm-hmm. there's a footnote there. It's footnote 41, if you want to look this up. Again, we'll put a link to this. It's footnote 41, and I want to re- I've just got to read this footnote because this, to me, is unbelievable, and I've got some questions for you about this. Ross, but let me just read this first. This is from Doctrine and Covenants, 132, verses 54 and 64. And again, it's annotated right here. So they're not, I don't think they're really trying to hide it. I think they're trying to be honest about it and say, look. To a point. To a point. Okay, here's what it says. So this is part of their scripture. Joseph Smith, this is in their scripture. I I can't emphasize that. This is in their scripture. You're not... When you hear what I'm about to read, you'll see why I'm so blown over by this. Okay, but here's what it says, verse 54. And I command mine handmaid, Emma Smith, to abide and cleave unto my servant Joseph and to none else. But if she will not abide this commandment, she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord, for I am the Lord thy God, and will destroy her if she abide not in my law, the law of plural marriage. Right. Right. And again, verily, verily, I say to you, verse 64, if any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power, and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, plural marriage, then shall she believe and administer unto him, or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God, for I will destroy her, for I will magnify my name upon upon all those who receive and abide in my law. Ross, I don't understand I honestly don't understand how a how a husband or a, certainly not a wife but how a husband could read this in their scriptures and not throw a flag at this. Help me understand yeah. this. Well, you know, to me I read that and it and it's today if if somebody showed up today at, with that same kind of claim we would say spiritual abuse. You know, it's yeah. it's um but you know, if you're a, if you're a faithful Latter Day Saint, you're looking at it through a certain lens, and you're looking at say, well, you know, if, if this is truly an eternal principle and truly a principle that upon which hinges your eternal exaltation in some way or another, then a person who opposes it, you know, would be 
um, in the way of, of God. And mm-hmm. no, now, and they might they might say, well, what does he mean by destroy? I, I don't know. You know, there, maybe there's some fudge factor there. But and then and and also to add to the manipulation and the abuse, in my view, Joseph came to Emma and said that an angel of the Lord had, uh, delivered this to him. The angel with a flaming sword threatened to destroy Joseph if he didn't do this. So right. Joseph's saying, like, I really didn't want to, but I had to. Yeah. God made me, you yeah. know, right. which sounds like an excuse that I might make, you know, <laughs> <It's>, yeah, <laughs> to exactly. my wife sometime, you know, I don't know. But, you know, so the whole thing, it, it, just, it just smacks of something else going on besides something that God would actually reveal. Okay, so how did Emma, do we know how Emma responded to this scriptural revelation? Well, um, she didn't leave him. She right? didn't. She didn't leave him. She capitulated. That's why the, the article talks about vacillating back and forth. She never liked it. She never um, said, "Oh, yay!" You know, this is so. I'm so glad God revealed this. And um, I think the real ultimate um, test of her uh, or evidence of her response is that when after Joseph died and Brigham Young became the leader of Mormonism, and they, Brigham Young had been initiated into the polygamy doctrine um, in, these, in these same time frame, that, that Emma didn't go with them. She didn't go west with the Mormons. Mm. She stayed in Nauvoo and married somebody else later. And so she always disavowed in, in her later life after her husband was gone, she always disavowed polygamy. Mm. Okay, we've got to, I've just got to ask you, Ross, about a couple of these other statements in this gospel topic, okay? It says there about Joseph Smith and plural marriage, a couple things. First of all, it says that his first, his first wife, his first, well, his first wife was Emma, but his first plural wife was Fanny Alger, and that was all the way back in Kirtland, Ohio in the mid-1830s. So this was not even revealed yet 1843, I think we just read, mm-hmm. is when yep. it came out officially in Scripture, but it, apparently it was sort of secretive for a while before that. So do we know anything more about Fanny Alger? Yeah, we know something about her. Um, her situation is you, stands alone in a sense. It wasn't because there wasn't a sense that after Fanny Alger that Joseph was engaging in plural marriage relationships for the next 10 years until 1843. So it's kind of a it's kind of a outlier in a sense. Um, Fanny Alger was a was a girl who came to live with the Smiths. She was she was lived there for three years, I think, from 1833 to 1836. And um, it, during that time, she was between the ages of like 16 and 19 years old. Um, and so, jo- so Joseph Smith did have a liaison mm. with Fanny Alger. To the best of everybody's knowledge, that now at the time it was considered to be an affair, and there were other, there were uh, even some of the voices within Mormonism, um, some of the original leaders of Mormonism thought it was a disgusting thing, mm. and and called Joseph Smith out about it. Um, some of the persecution that we mentioned earlier that happened in the Kirtland um, Kirtland era was related to this. One time, Joseph Smith got. Uh, but a mob knocked at his door late at night, and they grabbed him and pulled him out, and they tarred and feathered him. Mm. Now, I, I grew up LDS, and I was always taught that was because of religious persecution. Mm, it's more likely that that was because of his relationship with Fanny Alger. They were going to castrate him. Mm. 
they didn't get around to it or something that, that <laughs> night for some reason. Um, and so why would they castrate him over religious issues? It was because he was, um, he was taking advantage of this teenage girls living in their home. Now, so, so it's interesting. It was interesting to me when I first read the Gospel Topic essay that it took the, the umbrella of Joseph's polygamy, Nauvoo polygamy, and it, and it cast it backward to cover Fanny Alger as well. Yeah. Um, I would look at that a little bit differently. I would say, you know, maybe, maybe he found some justification for that affair by the stories of, you know, David and Abraham, the polygamists in the Old Testament. But... Um, to me, it was nothing more than just um, just a, an a, a affair where he took advantage of a young woman living in his house. It, I, I, to me, it'd be hard to see that even um, even in the category of a plural marriage. Yeah, yeah. Today, if someone were to do that, they would be in prison, <clears throat> right? Yeah, absolutely. And really, it, it, later on in the gospel topic um, article, it says most of those sealed to Joseph Smith again, married to Joseph Smith, were between 20 and 40 years of age at the time of their sealing to him. The oldest, Fanny Young, was 56 years old. The youngest was Helen Marr Kimball, daughter of Joseph's close friends Heber C. and Violet Murray Kimball, who was sealed to Joseph several months before her 15th birthday, which is interesting that they say it like that. Like, she was a 14-year-old. Yeah. Guys, yeah. listen... I mean, I just want to, I want to appeal to any dad out there. And I know for Mormons, this was a big sticking point. Could you imagine, I don't understand any justification at all for someone coming, a cult, a religious leader coming to you as a dad and saying, I want to marry your 14 year old daughter. To me, that's, I would I, immediately, Ross, I would run, I would run from the, uh, that right there, that right. And I know there's a lot of abuse in the Mormon church. It's been well documented to even today that there's bishops and whatever. And a lot of that stuff just gets, you know, look, don't say anything to anyone about it. We, we've, I, we hear that all the time and not just in books. We've done ministry here for over 20 years and we've seen that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's very, very sad that almost like, this is almost like a part of the ethos of the Mormon Church, I think, Ross, am I being am I being unfair? In no, saying not that? totally. I, you know, it is fair to connect the dots to some extent. It certainly is a culture of secrecy that protects leaders, and that goes all the way back to Joseph Smith, mm. because he. So when he went to Heber Kimball and Violet Kimball, uh, and and he said, I'm sure he said, I, I want to marry your daughter, and God told me, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's this kind of spiritual authority that that leaders hide behind, um, and it, it, Joseph had cultivated the loyalty of these leaders, and they looked up to him, and so eventually you keep pushing the boundaries, and eventually your leader's going to ask you to do something that's, you know, and you keep doing it because of the loyalty and the, and the belief in the system and the, everything that's happened in the past, and I think that, I think that culture of, of unthinking loyalty to spiritual leadership, mm -hmm. um, a, lot of, a lot of bad people have hidden behind that. Right. And I would even say, not, not even just in Mormonism, because I think yeah. that's, that's true for some Christian churches yeah, as well. It is true. So I want the Mormons to hear this who are listening. We're not just, we're not just exposed, we wouldn't just expose this in Joseph Smith's story. We would expose this in our own church. We would, expose, we would expose this in Christian churches. We don't think this is right in any church. Right, amen. 
but but in a in a Christian church, it's the pastor of the church. It's not the founder of the church of the religion, right? right? Joseph Smith is the founder of this religion, and these five things, and there's so much more. These five things to me are sketchy, and it it I think it should really cause you to question if you're a faithful Mormon. It should cause you to question: Should I really? Should I really be a Mormon? I know that's a hard question to ask, and that's scary to think about the ramifications of leaving a church that maybe you grew up in or maybe your whole family grew up in. But I want to call you back to what we read at the beginning, Ross, from Joseph, Fifth, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was, who was a prophet, the third prophet, fourth prophet? No, he was, he was uh, I don't know, seventh or down the line. Okay, he was down the he line. He was 20th century. So here, again, what we started with, I want to read this again. Now that we've been through this over this last hour, Mormonism, he said as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. We agree with that, Ross. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed, and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There's no middle ground. I so agree with that. And, and what's, when I read that, it reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis essentially says the same thing, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. There's essentially there's no middle ground. Like yeah. he was he yeah. was either he was either crazy, or he was a liar, or he is who he says he is. And so I, I think maybe we should just close by saying that Ross, what what is true of Joseph Smith and Mormonism is also true for Jesus and Christianity. Christianity stands and falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ, not anyone else, not a pastor, not an evangelist that you've not your favorite televangelist on TV. Yeah. It stands and falls on Jesus Christ, and Jesus is proven over and over that he is trustworthy. Mormonism stands or falls on Joseph Smith, and I don't think we can say the same thing for him. Yeah. All right, if you want to learn more about this, you can find this and so much more on Mormonism and Christianity at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. encourage you to share this with a friend. We'll see you next time. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.